This is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to episode four of season two, if my math is correct, and it is. All right, we have, uh, this is what I initially termed an Eric Carmen episode all by myself. No interview today. We have two more coming up next week, but there was just some things we wanted to cover today. And we're going to do that a couple more times over the next, uh, this at least once more over this season, because we're going to have a show completely and totally dedicated to really weird analogies that are made when we're arguing about the issue of abortion that kind of flirted with that being in the show today, but decided not to for, for reasons that have to do with uh, one particular question. I wanted to talk about persons, but before we get to that, uh, I want to, there's a couple of different things. Number one, uh, if you are watching online, if you're watching on YouTube, then you see always the array of things behind me that I change out the, uh, what are they? I can't remember what they're called. What are they called? Pops. Pops. Yeah. The pops that my family gives me, I changed them out. I think right now behind me, I have Saitama from one punch man. I have more cowbell. Um, I know I also have, uh, Mr. Rogers, Back there, we always have, we have Darth Tater back there. I think he's over the shoulder. So hard. there we go. There's Darth Tater, and there's a Daredevil potato head. Uh, there, there's Walking Jesus. That's right. That is from my wife. You wind him up, and Jesus walks. There is a Kool Aid. That's there for my daughter, my youngest daughter, who and her. There's a period in her lacrosse career where she had a Kool Aid sticker decal on her helmet, and so people called her Kool Aid Girl. So that's why Kool Aid is there. And then right here, he is always back on the shelf, but today he is up here on the table with me. This is Sackboy. Sackboy comes from um, Little Big Planet. And the only reason I want to talk about this morning, because I was I was reflecting, you know, it's a weird thing when you get older, right? I mean, there's the, I was just talking to one of my kids about this. As you get older and you're, you're, you're young, you're a teenager then, and then all of a sudden you're in college and your well, your past is almost immediate to you, right? It, you feel like as you move away from your music or your shows or whatever, and they're just immediately lost. What it means to be sentimental or reminisce about them, or or to want them to come back, is they're, they're close to you. They're, they're still relatively connected to the world around you in a meaningful way. There's a bridge that went from what you listen to to what the people are currently listening to. So when you uh, want to listen to that or hear that it's not so distant. The past is immediate. And the older you get though, the more those things change. And now at this point in my well, very early fifties, and I look back at my time growing up, it's weird because the world that I grew up in is entirely different than the world that my kids are growing up in, in every way. And so for my youngest at 14 now, her world doesn't in any way look like the world that I grew up with. And this came crashing down when somebody posted some things online recently. It was a little video that they had put together and it was a bunch of items that I had grown up with. It was Simon. Um, it was, it was the, the game, you know, the, there was, there was all these different games, all these different ways of listening to music, all this, this thing that was our childhood. And my wife and I were looking at it and I was thinking, man, that was such a particular time in our lives. That's just gone. Right. It just will never come again. There will never be a group of people that grow up with the world that looked the way it looked when people my age grew up. That's true of every 
generation. Every generation has their own world that they're growing up in. But now that you're so distant from it, the reminiscing about it is for something gone, not something that is just immediately in our past that still has some logical connection to the world around you, but it's gone. And so as I think about that idea of, of my past and then grow great, grateful, and that's a weird thing to say, right? I guess because it was, I'm grateful that I grew up in the time of boom boxes or, 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 or Walkmans or, or any of the technology that we had. Even I was the, I, you know, we, I remember when we got cable boxes. I remember when we got VCRs and we started being able to record. I remember uh, recording songs on the radio, right? You would have your your cassette player out and wait for the song to start and then you record it. I remember when we, to get lyrics, you couldn't look up a, a, a thing online. What you had to do was sit there and listen with a sheet of paper, like, like a legal pad or something like this, or your trapper keeper or whatever you had. And you would sit there with a pen and after you record the song, you go back and listen and write the lyrics out. And then you could go and compare what lyrics you had with somebody else to see if we were all matching up in case somebody got something weird. It, it was all of these different things that were tied to the technology of the era in which I grew up, I, I'm grateful for. It was a weird time. It was a strange time because it's so different than the world that we live in now. But it was our time, my wife's and I's time, anybody my age. Uh, and, and I'm grateful and so I'm getting back to Sackboy. Um, I was thinking about the world that my kids grew up in and the differences between it. And then in some ways I was grateful for little weird things in there. I am, it's weird to say, but I'm grateful that my son and my daughter who are a little bit older and my first daughter who are a little bit older than four years older than Nika and five years older than Nika. I'm grateful that we had the Wiggles when they were young. I don't know if you're familiar with the Wiggles, <laughs> the Australian band. But man, we used to listen to the Wiggles when my kid was in his high, when Payne was in his high chair. Potato, hot potato, hot potato, hot potato, hot potato, hot potato, 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 potato. And we would listen to the Wiggles and he loved it. And there were Wiggles songs that we would sing as a family. Uh, and, and some of the TV shows, a Bear in the Big Blue House. I'm grateful that my kid grew up in the time of Bear. I liked watching Bear in the Big Blue House with my kids. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of things that it, it, it's fun. Now, I am a little bit jealous because if you're growing up today, you have Bluey. And I think Bluey is probably, objectively speaking, the greatest TV show that kids have ever had. I mean, Bluey is awesome. But I am still grateful for things like Bear in the Big Blue House, for the Wiggles, for this time period that my kids grew up in where we had these very specific things that were their time. Uh, and one of the things is, I was just thinking recently about how grateful I was that I played Little Big Planet with my kids as a video game that we played together and worked our way through. Here's a storyline. If you're not familiar with Little Big Planet, that's where Sackboy comes from. Sackboy starts like this. He looks like this. If you can't, if you're not, if you're listening, He's just very basic. It looks like he's made out of canvas. He has a zipper on them. And then as you progress through the game, you find accessories to add to him so you can individualize it. Little Big Planet also offered the opportunity for you to go online and design your own worlds based on the way that the design parameters put into Little Big Planet. So you could build the Little Big Planet universe and then share your your level or stage with somebody else. And that would become part of this greater little big planet world that you could experience that was being built by everybody that was playing it. So you had the main goal, the main game, and then you had the ability to create more. 
Now when I say I'm happy, I was talking to my son yesterday and I said, I don't ever remember in my entire life playing a video game that I felt as satisfied with the ending as I did little big planet. It was little big planet is a strange little game where you are running around trying to find basically lost friends or have been taken. And there, there are nefarious for forces working there, but it's all very fun and it's got really good music. And by the time you get to the end, uh, and I feel like it's okay to spoil it now because it's so <laughs> by the time you get to the end, you find the person that's been stealing all of your friends and everybody. And in the confrontation with them at the ending of it, you find out that he just wants to play. Uh, and so we all agree to play with each other <laughs> and then everybody gets free and there's a party and it's all very happy. And I was telling myself, I don't ever remember being that satisfied with the ending because it felt weird as you were developing towards the big bad, right? The big boss that you had to fight at the very end that you had to overcome because little big planet was such a kind and happy game. It felt weird that we were coming to this confrontation, this point of defeating this enemy. And so I cannot express for whatever reason, how satisfying it was as an adult playing this kid, this game with your kids. Then at the very end, the result was we all just want to play together. So let's just play and have fun and not be more intense than we have to be. It was such a lovely ending to a lovely game and, and I'm grateful. So that's why I have Sackboy here with me all of the time uh, is because Sackboy is a reminder, not just of, a really great time I had with my kids, which it was, but also a reminder of kindness and fun and, and, and being playful and creativity and a lot of things that are just great about being young and about being alive in general and about being a child of God or, or, or however you want to put it about the image bearer of God to be that sort of thing and to have at our ability, the resources to be creative and to be loving and to be kind and, and I love when game that's, if you go back to free guy right now, it's probably one of my favorite movies to go back and watch every once in a while. Cause I think free guy has such a great message tied to the gaming world. It can be cynical and it can be obscene and it can be corrosive and all of these things that the gaming world can be. And this movie centers around this idea that if we gave, gamers the opportunity to just experience watching these life forms grow and be happy and flourish and thrive and enjoy themselves that maybe there would be something there and and guy very much like uh buddy the elf if you're watching um the uh the movie elf is an unapologetically unrelentingly positive person the character guy in the movie and, and, and that's a lovely thing in a movie as well. And, and going back to, to what I think is probably the best treatment of kindness in a film that I've seen that, that resonates with me. I, I'm obviously I may be forgetting something, but the live action Cinderella directed by Kenneth Branagh to me, maybe the only single live action Disney movie that they've come out with since they started this atrocity of taking all of these great animated movies and turning them into mediocre or horrible live action movies and, and, and try it's And it, it's such a, such a cynical cash grab. I mean, they're not even apologizing for it. They've made terrible decisions with their IP. They bought all of this stuff rather than creating new things. And then they're running it all into the ground and they're just doing a terrible job and they're losing billions. They're spending billions of dollars to make money or to make, 
products that people don't enjoy and don't like watching. And it's, it's so there are doing things, but they're saying we're doing this only to make money. We're making another toy story movie. Cause we need the money. We're making another frozen movie. Cause we need the money. We're making all of these animated movies into live action movies. Cause we need the money. We're jacking up the prices on our, on our resorts and everything else because we need the money because we've mismanaged one of the largest companies in the world. So here's the problem though. Almost every live action remake they made is garbage. And, and, and there's no point in having made it. Except, I will argue, the Cinderella remake. Because what Cinderella, and I was just talking to my wife about Cinderella anyway. Cinderella is a strange story for me in the sense that at any given moment, if you ask me if I'm in love with the story of Cinderella, I would tell you, no, and I don't even think there's that much depth there. I don't think there's much to plumb there. But every time I watch the animated movie with my kids, and that happened a lot growing up because my daughters loved the Cinderella movie, um, the animated movie, I liked it. Every time I watched it, I was surprised to find out how much I enjoyed the movie and how much I thought there was there that I really liked. So when they decided, and but I don't like all the Cinderella, all the, I mean, the a million other Cinderella stories I could live without. Uh, it felt like they're making them constantly. So when they announced they were making this live action movie, I was very, at first I thought it was, I was dismissive of the idea. There's nothing more to do. It's been done well the first time, leave it alone and stop retelling it because that, that animated movie works. And then I went and saw it and completely changed my mind. Not only do I think it's well acted. I mean, they have some great actors in that movie, but it's a, it's a treatment of the power of kindness. I mean, that's what the movie is. The movie is a, is a, a reflection on the power of kindness, of just unrelenting kindness, that if, of a character who makes it her goal because this was passed to her from her parents, whom she loved, who were both kind people, that in order to honor them in the way that she lives her life, she is going to be kind to everyone as much as she can. She will return indifference with kindness, anger with kindness. She's gonna try her best throughout her life to, to give that to her world. The, the refrain throughout is to have courage and be kind, is, is the, her, her, the way that she lives her life, the mantra by which she lives her life, the principles, the guiding principles of her life, to so have courage and be kind. If you have courage and you're kind, it's gonna work out. You'll be able to sort things through. And it's, it's just a, it's a beautiful treatment to me of how that, how powerful that idea is, especially in a world where everyone else around, except for a few very specific characters is looking out for themselves, looking for their own advancement, looking for the growth of their own power, manipulating, uh, being hurtful, hateful. Uh, and in some places just flat out evil and just constant return in the face of that, of the kindness of Cinderella, uh, building towards a very Christian moment where I think you also get a great uh, treatment of the power of forgiveness. As Christians, we're called to forgive. And sometimes it can seem like an odd command for God to say to forgive others. And at the end of that movie, you get to see as she forgives her stepmother for everything that she's done to her, that the forgiveness is working both as a weapon against the evil of the stepmother, but also empowers her to move on in her life and to no longer allow the stepmother's evil hatred, all the things that she's done to her abuse, not, no longer allow that to define who she is. 
it's, it's just a wonderful treatment of kindness. And so on the same level, Little Big Planet for me was that as a video game as well. It was this fun and yet not dark. And it was, it was, it was upbeat and it was positive and it was filled with happiness. And there was nothing that was, there was one, there's one, I do remember there is one stage that takes place in something like a haunted house. And my youngest did not particularly enjoy that stage. So whenever we were there, she would leave the room. But other than that, it was just such a wonderful thing. And so that's what I have Sackboy with me all the time when I am here doing this in the studio doing this because Sackboy reminds me both of a really fun time that I had with my kids and also the imperative to not see conflict for the point of defeating the people who I'm up against as the resolution that I'm seeking. That sometimes we're trying to, all the time, all the time, we're trying to bring a community together through searching for truth, right? Truth is good. True things, understanding the world as it is, a true understanding of what it is, is good for all of us. And if I can convince you of the truth, particularly what we talk about a lot on this show, that all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect, that the world will be a better place. And that fighting over that with, with the people that you have to argue with this shouldn't be something ugly. Okay, and, and um, to that point, we're going to get to something a little later. There's one other thing I want to talk to you before we get to that, though. So before we get to the Roland Martin video, there's one other thing that I do want to talk about. And that is, and this is purely Jay churchgoer, Christian guy, moment about reflection on this weekend. I, our, at our church, we did the Lord's Supper this weekend. What I'm about to say is not meant to be an admonition or a complaint about my church, although there probably is on some level or another there's some judgment in there that can't be avoided about the way things happened this weekend. We here's, here's the thing. And here's where I come from with this. Uh, and I, this is not a question of what I think the Lord's supper is. So I'm not getting into this between like Catholic or Protestant views of the Lord's supper. I'm not going to like transubstantiation or whether it's spiritually infused or whether it's merely symbolic. I'm, I don't want to get into any of this because no matter what your view of the Lord's supper is, as a Christian, there's one thing that's undeniable. It's important. It's a deeply important thing, right? No, everyone, no matter how we view it, as we come to the Lord's Supper, has to come with that view in mind. And I'm, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm oftentimes, I guess, I, I just a little bit taken aback at how unreflective we can be and what a relationship with God entails. For those of us who believe in God, if you don't believe in God, obviously there's absurdities to all of this that we would have to work through in a different argument for you, from your idea of it. But if you do, from a purely theistic point of view or from a particularly Christian point of view, let's talk about what it is that we're, we're, we're discussing. In relationship with God, we're talking about a relationship with an all-powerful, transcendent being. Yes, he is mercy and grace and love. He is all of those things when you talk about it, Jesus manifesting those things for us in the incarnation. But he's also judgment. He is also justice. He is also the God that sustains the universe every single moment. He is jealous. And he is forgiving. This is a by any evaluation, the concept of God we're talking about ought to, on some level, be terrifying. 
in the sense that the Bible tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You go to him first, recognizing that the entity that I approach is something I cannot understand, operating at a power level that is inconceivable to me. And I have been given to understand through both his revealed word and the teachings of the people that have taught me this, that he cares about me as an individual. And that in and of itself is terrifying because I am all sorts of messed up. And the idea that he is watching knowledgeable, I mean, not watching in the same way we watch in that sense of like eyes, <laughs> like staring at you, but, but he is aware Constantly, I remember asking a guy many years ago who was struggling with his faith and he and I were chatting and he was prone to do things. And so he would tell me conversationally things that he wasn't proud of. And one time I asked him, I said, so you believe in God? He said, yes. And I said, so do me answer this question. When you go into those rooms and do the things that you do, where do you think he is then? And I remember him looking horrified as I asked, asked the question. And then he said, I guess somewhere in my mind, in my heart, I hoped that he just stayed out of the room, that he wasn't watching. So, but as I say that, I think I believe in God and I know the things that I'm doing and I know he knows the things that I'm doing. And the relationship with him requires so many times that we rationalize or justify different things, excuses that we make for what we're doing. This gets all obviously much bigger when we, the more egregious the sin that we're talking about. But even at lower levels, we have to be mindful of the idea that God's perfection is terrifying. <laughs> I remember one time I was working with some young people. There's three of them. And we were, they were trying to do some discipling thing with me. And we were sitting around talking. And one of them was sharing with the experience of another mentor. He said, oh, this mentor is a holy man. This mentor is a holy man. And I'm thinking, what, you know, the term holiness is a very powerful word for me. So, so what do you mean? He said, oh, he and I were talking. And he said, you know, one time I managed to go three days without sinning. That's the longest I've ever gone, three days without sin. And he seemed taken aback that I seemed what we incredulous about this claim. And he said, Why, what, do you doubt that my mentor with three days without sin, that this holy man was able to live three days. And I, I have no doubt that your mentor believes that. Sure, right? But when you say without sin, when you say the holiness of God, and then you say for three days you managed to live like that, to me, you don't understand what we mean when we say the holiness of God of such quality that if you looked at it and beheld it in person, it would destroy you. It would annihilate you. So no, I don't think your mentor did that for three days. Now, I, I believe that he did his best and maybe had three really strong days, but the holiness of God is terrifying in its purity and it's inconceivable to us. 
and we can, empowered by God, do the best that we can. But there will always be sins of omission. There will always be things that we should have done that we didn't do because we're not perfect in our knowledge or understanding of the world around us and the needs of the people and even of the perfect will of God. These are things that will always evade us. We are empowered through the Holy Spirit to live and to seek the truth. But we are held back by certain weaknesses that we have and not being God. And so I'm not saying that we, he didn't have three great days where to the best of his knowledge, he did the best that he absolutely could. I'm saying that the gap between the perfect holiness of God and what we are at any given moment is, is well, it's impossible for us to grasp because we can't even behold the holiness of God except through his son, Jesus. So here's the thing. When we take the blood of the body, however we understand this, we are given some warnings. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll start in verse 23. For I received from the Lord, Paul writes, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and he was given thanks and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, my body. My blood. Then he says, for when, and then Paul writes, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, this is not a trivial thing. And then he goes on to say, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So, flashback to this weekend. We're at church and our church is doing the Lord's Supper. And because we had a dog that was injured and there had been all these things that are going on, my wife had to stay home. And so I was there alone with my youngest, with Nika. And she and I are watching, and we get to the Lord's Supper, and they tell us that we're going to take it, and they, they mention some words about what it is. But no warning. No serious moment of, get right. You're about to take the Lord's Supper. You're about to drink the blood and eat the body. You're about to remember the price that was paid for your sin. You're about to embrace it and you're to take it in you to demonstrate your awareness of who we are and what our relationship is to him and all of this. And it, without that seriousness, I felt a moment, I stopped. Like as they're passing around, I stopped. And I looked at my 14-year-old and I said, I need to know that you know that if you have something you're carrying in your heart before we do this, that you now have the opportunity to give it up to God. If something that you're living with, that you need to reconcile yourself to God, if there is someone who you are in an argument with that you are not at peace with right now, then you need to recognize that before God and actually go fix it if at all possible, or at least as, as much as it is on your part. There are people who hate me, a lot of people who hate me. There are Christians who hate me. There are people that used to be my friends who hate me. 
And when they tell me that, I remember one particular painful conversation with a friend was telling me how much he hates me. I was trying to make sure that I didn't allow that to come to me. Going back to even to some of the, the kindness we were talking about earlier, and I was telling them, I understand why you feel the things that you feel, but it will not ever be returned. I will never do anything but love you. That is all I have. And I understand why you don't like me, but I'm asking you to forgive me if you feel like I have wronged you, if I have wronged you, if you see this as wrong, or if this thing that I've done, I apologize for at this point so that we can be reconciled with each other. If we have to part, let us part, but let's not part like this. Let's do whatever we have to do here on both of our parts, on both of our sides, to make sure that we part as people that recognize the value of each other, the love of God that governs our lives. You don't have to like me. I can live with that. But we can't actively hate each other. We're just not allowed. We just don't have that opportunity or option given to us. And I have to go before. I was talking to a man who was a very powerful player many, many years ago in the apologetics community. And he was telling me, it's, I, he's over dinner one time, he said, I was a pastor at a church. And I suddenly found out that two families, I said, what's going on between those families over there? There seems to be some tension. And the, the deacons that I was eating with were telling me, oh, they hate each other. And they've hated each other for years. And he said, why am I only hearing about this now? And I said, well, we just didn't think it was that important as a new pastor if you didn't know about it. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. Since I've been pastor, we've taken the Lord's Supper multiple times. And we have people in our congregation who hate each other. I have to know. I can't let them take the Lord's Supper under those conditions. They have to reconcile this in some way before we go to God. And the answer from that church was to fire the pastor for making those demands on them to take the Lord's Supper seriously. So that moment I looked at my daughter and I said, this is a serious thing. We have to do everything that we can at this moment to be right with God as we take the body and the blood. Are you ready? And she said, yes. I said, okay. Because I was concerned with the cavalier nature. One more story on this before we move on. Many years ago, I was working with a youth group, a disciple now. So it was a D now, Southern Baptist Church. And they were getting ready to take the Lord's Supper. And I wasn't enjoying it. I, I, I mean, in the sense of, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy youth. I enjoy working with youth. That's not the problem. It's the show wears on me sometimes. The show is just not my thing. I'm not part of the show. And so I was, the show was wearing on me and I was sitting back there and all of a sudden this young man, early high school, gets up, runs out the back crying. His student leader, college guy, runs out the back chasing after him. The youth minister looks at me and he says, I can't leave. I don't know what's going on out there but I don't trust that college guy to handle it perfectly. So would you go out and just watch what happens? And I said, okay, I got you. So I walked outside. We're in this hallway and there's this young man crying. And there's this college guy who 
his heart's in the right place. It really is. I understand where he's coming from. He's trying to make sense of what's happening there. He's young. He's impulsive. He's passionate. That's why he's volunteering at this thing. He wants to serve God. He wants to do the right thing. And he's telling this kid, I understand why you're upset. I understand what you're doing. You understand all the terrible things that I did before I came to know Christ in college. And then he starts listing off all the terrible things he did when he was in college to this poor kid who's already burdened with something else. And now he's dumping all his stuff on him. And I'm watching this thinking, whoa, no, 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 no. So um, after he lists off this completely inappropriate list, trying to, he's trying to identify with the kid. He's trying, whatever this kid is going through, he thinks if he lets this kid know that he's a sinner too, it's going to help him come to terms with all that. And so when he got done with this list and the kid just was sitting there, the young man was sitting there, I, I sat down next to the young man and I said, Hey, and we don't know each other. So can I ask you something? And he said, yes. I said, what are you upset about? What is it that you're so upset about right now? What drove you from that room crying? And he said, I'm not a Christian, but I've learned so much from the teaching over the last few days. And then they said they were going to take the Lord's Supper. That we're, and that we have the opportunity now, if we want to, to pray. And he said, I can't take it. You don't know the things I've done. I cannot go up there and do this now. I'm not worthy to take it. And I looked at that kid for a second and I thought, and I said to him, young man, you may be the only person in that room that's ready to take the Lord's Supper. You may be the only person in this building that has grasped some way through all of this, the spiritual importance about what's about to happen in that room. I can't think of a single other person that's ready to take the Lord's Supper more than you right now. As a matter of fact, I feel condemned as I'm talking to you that I didn't prepare myself enough for this moment today, knowing that it was coming. He said, I am unworthy of the Lord's Supper. You are unworthy. You are right. So let's pray here together if you want to. And then you and me, we will walk down. You and I will walk down that aisle and we will take the Lord's Supper together. Two unworthy human beings, two brothers in Christ, if we pray together now, taking the Lord's Supper as it ought to have been taken with fear, but at the same time, recognition of what that means that we take the body and the blood, that all those things that we're ashamed of that we're bringing to the altar of God have been taken care of through the cross and the resurrection. Young man, you're, you're ready as long as you're willing to take the forgiveness, as long as you're willing to take the grace that's clearly being laid out in front of you right now, the call to repentance that we will answer through prayer and the approach to the altar to take the Lord's Supper. It is such a powerful moment. And, and we take, take it for granted. I don't think we mean to. It's just part of the order of worship or things that we have to do. But 
But that moment of panic when I looked at my daughter, not panic in the sense of, oh no, this is awful, but the, the seriousness with which I needed her to understand, they're going to give you a little cup, like a little shot glass, and they're going to give you a little piece of bread or a little piece of unleavened bread. And that, they're going to pass that on to you as if it were just the easiest thing in the world to take it and to drink it and to eat it and to move on with your life. And I got to tell you, it's not. So let's take this moment seriously between the two of us, even if, if, if it may not be taken seriously enough in this moment in my estimation. But so I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit as well too. Now let's move on. We've done sack boy, kindness, the Lord's supper. Now I want to play. Um, this was a video that we're going to play from YouTube that it came across every, every the night, the night before we do these podcasts, I get asked, do you have any assets that you would like us to have videos, audio, anything that, that they want us to show. And I almost always say no. And if I ever do, I almost do it like this, where I walk into the studio and I say, JD, can we do this? It just came up. So I know I was supposed to give it to you last night, but here it is. But this came up and I just wanted to respond briefly to this. This is Roland Martin, uh, a Democrat. He's a, he has a podcast, he does interviews. And in this particular case, it's an argument that he's having with a black woman who is pro-life who was talking to him about abortion and, and are we ready to go ahead and show it? We'll let it, we'll let it speak for itself. So you can listen to it now. And if you're watching it, it should be. Here. When we talk about aborting babies, like, so you're saying to me that because we, we support life, actually giving babies the opportunity to live. I'm, I'm confused. I'm so confused. No, no, no. First of all, you know, hold up. You're confused because you think I'm saying something that I'm not. Well, tell me what you're no, saying. What I'm telling you, I'm being very Please. clear. You cannot say you are pro-life when you vote against prenatal care for the mother. You mm -hmm. cannot say you are pro-life when you vote against Head Start. Mm -hmm. You cannot say you are pro-life right. when you do not want to expand Medicaid to keep hospitals open. You cannot say you are pro-life when you have OBGYNs who are not available in your state. Yeah. You cannot say you are pro-life when you have black women who are dying at a higher rate during childbirth and you do nothing public policy-wise to fix it. You cannot say you are pro-life if you allow infant mortality rates to be sky high in areas where there are black and brown people. What that tells me is you are anti-abortion. You are not pro-life. Right. Because if right. you are pro-life, right. you care about the child in the womb right. and when the child is out. Thank and you. if you are pro-life, you are standing there with black folks when their kids are killed by cops. That you are right. not silent. So Come if on. you are pro-life, be pro-life from the womb to the tomb, but not just in the womb. That was a lot to sort through. And so I don't, I, I want to, um, I want to avoid trying to go through item by item and pick at every little thing that's said in there, uh, just because of interest in time, we don't have it. Uh, and, and I just don't have the interest in sorting through all of it. So, in, but I want to say there's a couple of things I did not like about that exchange. Number one, uh, I have tried my hardest to teach my kids that adults yelling at each other should not be normal for communication. The world has tried its best to teach different lessons, particularly on talk shows. Look, I have lived my entire life as an adult, and I can tell you the number of times that I was yelled at by another adult, and they're very, they're shockingly small. It just doesn't happen. I don't. Other adults just don't 
yell at me during the course of a conversation and start screaming at me. And if they did, the few times that it has happened, I've shut down the conversation. I'm just, that's not a normal way to talk to people. And it's, and it's unhealthy. And I, my son and my daughters have had to work with people in their youth that are probably more likely. Now, this is not talking about coaches yelling. Like coaches, when you're in a sports team, they can, they can be loud. This is talking about the yelling at somebody in a discussion. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not in love with the tone, but, you know, that's tone police is something that I hear about that people don't like online when you're arguing about the tone. Who are you to tell them about the tone? That's, that's fine. Okay, so the, the, the idea is if I am going to call myself pro-life, then I am required to take on every other position that's held by Roland Martin that he believes is indicative of respect for other human life. If not, then I'm not allowed to call myself pro-life. So there's so many things wrong with this. First of all, if I'm talking about the identity and definition of pro-life as somebody who believes that all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect in the sense of what Christopher Kayser is often called the inclusive view of human value, that every human being ought to be treated, every member of the human family ought to be treated with dignity and respect. All those who are identified as humans fall into the category as valuable members of our human family. And so if you're a human, you are one of us, and I must proceed accordingly. So if that's true, then the statement that this woman was, was making in this conversation was, are you, you're mad at us because we want to protect life before it's born from the destructive act of abortion because we have an inclusive view of human life. And we believe that human life ought to be treated with dignity and respect, even at its immature early stages. That's why we're called pro-life. And he says, you don't get to be pro-life. Now, here's the only reason that I'm responding to this, because I don't think that there's anything substantively to respond. First of all, it's not an argument. It's a rant. It's, it's, a, it's an aggressive rant. It's question-begging throughout the whole thing, because the purpose of me, for example, if you follow this podcast, if you go to our website, if you've seen the articles or any of the podcasts that I've done with places like Christian Research Journal or Postmodern Realities, then you know that we focus on things other than just the issue of abortion, but that we focus more on abortion than anything else. Why? Because I don't know anything else that's killing that many human lives every year. I just don't. There's a reason that abortion has a higher level of urgency than other things. It's a destructive act against human life where somewhere in the neighborhood about a million lives are lost every year in the United States. It used to be reliably about 1.3 million human lives destroyed through abortion every year. Think of this peak as almost like 1.7 to something. Uh, and then we've, we've come down to somewhere around a million. It's hard to keep track of now because of chemical abortions and the pill has now moved to over 50, well over 50% of abortions. The majority of abortions are now going to be done through chemical abortions uh, and through RU46 through medical abortion. Um, and so this is the, why we have, this is why we have urgency on this issue because it's human life being destroyed in every single act of abortion. This is an argue, by the way, this is inarguable. There is no way to, to describe abortion without the intentional destruction of an innocent human life. Now, you may parse through the word innocent and say, well, that confers on some level of it a personhood. We're going to get into that in a second. We're going to get to that in just a moment. 
But that's why there's a priority and an urgency given to this issue over others. The other thing is, in order for us to end abortion, we just need to convince people to stop aborting their kids. Now, they're going to say, oh, well, I do it. Somebody's always going to do it. You're never going to end it. But that's true of all sorts of different things. And by the way, at the end of that, he says, you're not pro-life or anti-abortion. Well, that's just because you defined pro-life under certain terms. Let me be very clear. I don't have any problem with the anti-abortion title at all. You can call me anti-abortion. It doesn't break my heart. It doesn't hurt my feelings. It doesn't make me sad. And I don't shy away from it. I am anti-abortion. I'm anti-rape. I'm anti-slavery. I'm anti-murder. I'm anti-theft. I'm anti all sorts of things. You can add abortion to that list as well. And it doesn't hurt my feelings at all. But what I don't like is the idea that, and they call it, they think this was titled like exposing the hypocrisy of the pro-life movement. First of all, we are recording this in the building of the local pregnancy resource center because they say you only care about it until it's born. At this pregnancy center, I know we go up to 2T. Don't we go to 4T? Or we're trying to at some point, so 2T clothing, up to 3T, okay? Up to 3T. Up to 3T in clothing, diapers, all the needs we can possibly give. And we make them available to people if they come and participate with certain programs as many free of charge free of charge. All of those, by the way, are donated by the people in this community, the anti-abortion people in this community that are accused of not caring about children after they're born. See, here's the problem with the list that we were given by Roland Martin as far as why, what, what, what defines you as not caring about life. It's not that you don't care and it's not that you don't do things. It's that you don't do things as he says himself through public policy. Now, it has been accepted all throughout my childhood that most people in politics had similar goals, but had different means of reaching them. Meaning we wanted the same things. We wanted to see the same results. We just didn't believe that what you were going to do works. Now let's, let's take Head Start for a second because he mentions Head Start in there. If you, if you don't want to fund Head Start. Okay. So this is a good example, I think, to get some understanding of the difference between being somebody who believes that all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect, but not believing that a certain way of doing things will be ultimately beneficial to the society at large. Because what he's saying is if you don't support Head Start, then you don't care about kids who are underperforming because they're living in impoverished communities and don't have the same resources available that other people do. But that's not the same. And I'm not saying I don't support Head Start or I do support Head Start. I'm not taking a side on this at all. I just want to discuss this as, a, as, a, as, a, as an issue for a moment. It's possible that someone has the same desire to see the same people that Head Start, the same communities that Head Start is aimed and created to help and is aimed at. We want to see them flourish we want to see them do well. We want to find ways to lift them out of the life that they are living, that we see the same unfairness. It, there, are un, there are places that are just, it's not fair for a kid to grow up. I was speaking one time at an inner city school. I'd go, I would go and speak. When I would go to speak places, they'll sometimes will find places for me to go to speak for free in the area. And they asked if I would come speak to these very young children at an inner city school. And I was there talking to them and it was interesting. 
was, uh, in the sense that it was a the, the communication and the Q&A, there was a lot of questions about how life works and as far as how the lifestyle and, and, and it was it was a they were trying to understand who I was in the world that I came from and what was standing in front of them right now because I was foreign to them. It was alien to the world that they lived in. But then when I was leaving, there was a on the wall, there was written projects all along the wall in the hallway. What do you love best about your community? And what do you dislike about your community? And and it was sad because almost every child had written the same things that they disliked about their community. They didn't like the trash. They didn't like just how, how much trash there was everywhere in their community. They didn't like fighting around them all the time. They didn't feel safe in their community. If you read those items on that wall, then you know that there are kids that are growing up that are just living in a different world than the kids who are living in my house grew up in. They don't have the same ability to focus on school. And so I see that. And it's heartbreaking. And it's possible that other people see that same thing and their hearts are broken by it as well. And it's possible to be that person and to not believe Head Start works. It is. It is 100% possible. And, and it's possible at that point to say, I want there to be solutions. I just don't believe that's one of them. And you could say, well, it's only $8 billion a year. That's true. Relatively speaking to government spending, $8 billion isn't a lot of money. But the argument comes, and I want to read this. This, is, this isn't from some deep dive into research, because I just want to read this because it just shows you uh, how available this information is. I just did a Wikipedia search to look up how people who talk about Head Start on Wikipedia talk about the effectiveness of it. And there's both sides. There are, there, there are people that argue that it works well. They say there's statistical data that demonstrates that people who grew up in Head Start programs or early start programs that are funded or cooperatively funded with Head Start have less of uh, less a tendency for criminal uh, record, to have a criminal record, are less likely to go to prison. All of these the optimistic, they're more likely to be gainfully employed. They, they did better on test scores. All of these things are, are, they say, are demonstrated by certain studies. And there's another group that says there are short-term gains, which seems logical, right? When you focus on particular areas, they get better in those areas. But then as these kids progress, we see no measurable difference between them and the kids as far as academic performance that didn't go through Head Start. And, and so, and this goes, by the way, to government close. So in 2011, we said Time Magazine columnist Joe Klein called for the elimination of Head Start citing an internal report that the program is costly and makes negligible impact on children's well-being over time. You take the million or so poorest three- and four-year-old children and give them a leg up on socialization and education by providing preschool for them. If it works, it saves money in the long run by producing fewer criminals and welfare recipients. It is now 45 years later. 1965 is, by the way, when Head Start was begun. At the time, he says this, 45 years later, we spend more than $7 billion providing Head Start to nearly 1 million children each year. And finally, there is indisputable evidence about the program's effectiveness provided by the Department of Health and Human Services. Head Start simply does not work. He, if you read that, he's saying there's ways that we can try to find to help them, but we're 45 years in this experiment and it's not working. And that's 60 years in the experiment now, and it's not working. 
the way that we want it to. And, I, and I've said this elsewhere. We talked about Title 10 and when, Trump, when pre, then President Trump was going after Title 10 and people were getting upset about it. And this has to do with medical funds that are being given in a particular communities and how they're spent. And when they were tied up into abortion, they were restricted and people were saying you're withholding it. It's like, look, Title 10 is an old program. And if you look at the, the complaints from the communities that was meant to help, it's not working. It's not doing what it was intended to do. To say that Title 10 is not the answer is not to say I don't care. It's to say I care enough to want to do something that works and I don't believe that works. Those are two entirely different things. So this idea that because a group of people may have similar goals in mind and desire to see the same ends that he wants to see, but don't believe the means by which he is going to provide those ends will work, makes them not pro-life. It's so absurd and insulting. It's difficult to imagine we have to talk about it in an adult society. That we want to broad brush the people who disagree with us so disrespectfully. I don't agree with you. Maybe, and I'm not saying to say, I'm just saying hypothetically, I don't agree that those programs are working the way they ought to, or at least it's worth a, consider, a talk or, or consideration that there may be a better way to accomplish the goals that we want to accomplish. And then you have people who want to, uh, Thomas Sowell, who would like to bring up into this conversation, when we had intact families, we didn't have the problems that we're having today. And Thomas Sowell would bring up that information and say, look, this these are the things that changed that created the problems of the communities that we come from and they didn't exist prior to these other things happening. And that conversation will not be had because he's seeing as being, he's accused of being insensitive and all sorts of other horrible things. Now, that was somebody saying that it doesn't work. Here's the defense of it from a man by the name of W. Stephen Barnett, director of the National Institute for Early Education Research at Rutgers University. At the time that Klein wrote this in 2011, he rebutted it, saying weighing all of the evidence and not just that cited by partisan on one side or the other, the most accurate conclusion is that head start produces modest benefits, including some long-term gains for children. Now, there was, that's, I just wanted to focus on Head Start. I didn't want to go through everything on that list, but I just wanted to use that as a demonstration of the point. The defender of Head Start, his defense when somebody said, let's seek to fund it because 45 years in this experiment, it's not working, was Head Start appears to produce modest gains in some long-term benefits. So are we really at the place where being willing to question the effectiveness of a government program that has existed for more than half a century and doesn't seem to be producing the results that anybody hoped for? That can't be what the people who started Head Start were hoping for when they started it. Hopefully we will do $8 billion a year and 60 years into this, we'll be able to say, yes, we had some modest, possibly measurable gains. No. So there's no way that that can be the, the, the basis on which condemning somebody as not being pro-life because they don't buy into that particular program. It's nonsense. And it's a distraction. Because even if I agreed with you on every single point that you just made, you're still going to fight for the right to abortion. 
I know. I've stood in front of audiences and they bring things up. And I say, okay, what if I conceded it all right now? What if I conceded every objection you have to every other position that I hold? What if I joined you right now in all of those things? What if I became an advocate for all of those things and I took it immediately to active advocacy? Would you then join me in calling abortion the act of destroying a human life prior to birth because 90% of the time, just because it's inconvenient, would you now join me in condemning that if I accept your condemnation, condemnation of me and agree to change? 100% of the time, the answer is no. It's not an argument. It's an ad hominem. You're a bad person. It's question begging. Every issue I care about is more important than the issue that you care about. And by virtue of me caring about these and you caring about that, I am pro-life. I have absolutely zero responsibility to demonstrate the urgency of anything that I listed versus the death of a million human lives every year to the practice of abortion. I just declare it so without evidence and condemn you for disagreement and being wrong. It is ad hominem, question-begging nonsense. And what's weird to me, for the side that constantly accuses us of hating women, is to watch them go online and cheer him on for screaming at this woman on his show. Way to go. You put her in her place. She'll never forget the day that you set her down like this. Facts. Truth. Go get her. Stupid woman thinking she had the right to talk about being pro-life in front of you. Man, you set her straight. Those woman haters. What? craziness what a weird world we live in where a woman fighting for the value of human life and trying to articulate it gets screamed at by somebody and then all the people who tell us all the time how much we hate women this man yells at her and she cheer her him on. and and so so that's just number one there's an urgency to abortion because life is being lost it's it's important if you disagree with me about what the unborn are it's important that we figure out what they are because they objectively are something. It's valuable that we spend time talking about it and engaging this issue. We have to determine whether or not this is the unjust destruction of innocent human beings or whether it's nothing. But we don't get to assume that it's nothing. And then we don't get to bury that assumption and a bunch of other assumptions about things that are more important than that and then condemn people for not agreeing with us across the board on those things when even if they did agree with us, we would never change our mind about abortion. Disingenuous, question-begging, ad hominem, nonsense. It's an attack. It's not an argument. Okay. Now let's move on to the last thing that we're going to talk about today. And that is, I was, I said, I had planned to do and will do as soon as we get done with the next two interviews, the next episode after the next two interviews. And I'm very excited about those. One will be with Tina Whittington from students for life of America. So we're going to talk about 
uh, just a, a career that she's had of active of of being immediate in her activism in her community and what it means because I, I she when I talked to her about it she said well I'm not in apologetics I, said, I know I am I'm fine with that I got that side covered your greatest value to me is that you're a successful person working in the pro life world fighting for the value of human life and you're not me so I want other people to hear what you're doing and, and, and what's important about the way that you guys do what you do and, and really the importance of immediate action. That was one of the things I'm very excited about talking to her about because she knows about this idea that when something happens, we have to be there immediately. And I'm not that way. I'm the, I'm, I like something happens and I say, I'm going to need some time to mull this over. That's my response to this. So I'm fascinated by people who do good work and their immediate response is we have to be there in person fighting this right now immediate action. So I'm going to be talking to Tina, Tina Whittington about that. And then um, after that, we're going to have Christopher Tolleson, a professor, a philosophy professor from university of South Carolina, who is the co-author of two books that I love. One of them is embryo that he wrote with the great Robert George. And the other is the way of medicine. Uh, and, and he has graciously agreed to come on and we're going to focus on the way of medicine. And we're going to talk about that, which is looking at medical ethics in general and then through that, we're going to get to embryo as well and talk a little bit about embryo. So that will be the second interview. So we're going to do Tina, we're going to do uh, Dr. Tolson, and then we're going to go back and we're going to do weird analogies. But today I wanted to talk about something else entirely because um, there was a debate online between um, uh, on the, the podcast, whatever. And on the podcast, whatever, you had Kristen Hawkins from Students Fly of America. You had Lila Rose from Live Action. And then you had this person who called themselves Destiny. Uh, and depending on who you're listening to, the, the, the debate went well or it went terribly for the pro-life side. I, I mean, it, I, I haven't watched it. It's four hours. I need to sit down and watch it but um, because I am really interested in it. And I'm really interested, I probably as much because so many people have varying opinions about how it went. Some people feel like Lila and Kristen did amazing. And other people feel like they left themselves open uh, to some strong philosophical rebuttals. Uh, and then some people feel like there was just an ungraciousness that kind of settled. I don't know. I'm not here to speak about all this, but here's what was fascinating to me about it was that the bits of it that I have watched and I have watched snippets from it. I say snippets because it's four hours from what I understand. So the little bit that I've watched are snippets and in those snippets, destiny, I think is what the person calls themselves. Yeah. They keep saying that the unborn are not persons. And, and so I want to talk about that for a second with a, a little bit more in depth because he's, they're not the only ones. I don't know. He's not the only person saying it. Uh, this is something that comes up a lot. They're not persons. So what, what I found immediately when I was, when I listened to the justification that destiny offered, the first thing that I thought as listening to them was what it, it's strange to me when we make this case, the case that, the unborn are not person, human, but not person. How extraordinary this claim is. Now, giving it, let's give it the benefit. I always do my best to try to give people the benefit of the doubt and the best reasoning for why they would say the things that they're saying here. So let's do that. Okay, so if somebody says they're not persons, why are they saying that? Well, number one, we know that there's something that they want to do to that human life, Right. And it may not just be abortion for the sake of convenience. It could be research. They want to use embryonic stem cells. They want to watch the early uh, development of a zygote from zygote to uh, 
the primitive streak forming in that first 10, 12 to 14 days and, and to, to see where cellular differentiation comes, but be free to destroy the life after they've used it for the resource that they wish to use it for. They may want to mine it for cures, for other things. There's all sorts of reasons. But what's happening is we're seeing biological human life and wanting to treat it in a way that we would not treat other human beings that we see and operate within on a daily basis, right? And so the justification comes when you talk to them, why do you think this is okay? If that is biologically a human life, which is by the way, the only reason it has any value for research at all. So we understand it's a biological human life or a biological human life and your offspring that you want to destroy before they're born because you find their presence inconvenience. Why do you think it's okay? Here is, I think, the best possible explanation for where we get to this argument that there's such a thing as persons, because that's in the Constitution of the United States, rights are guaranteed to persons. That's why we're using the term persons, because we're trying to figure out who has rights and who doesn't. So the Constitution gives rights to persons, not to humans. Persons have rights. So we're like, why do you think then that we can differentiate between human beings and persons? It just seems to me that all human beings are persons even though not all persons are human beings, all human beings are persons, that everybody in the human family should fall in the category of persons and we should be approached accordingly. Here's the point. It's obvious to them that a zygote, single-celled organism, is not the same as you and me. You have rights. I have rights. They have rights. The zygote is not one of us. It's clearly not one of us. There are obvious differences between us. Same thing for an embryo. Same thing for a fetus. There's obviously differences between us. Rights are guaranteed to persons in the Constitution of the United States. That's not a person. And no reasonable human being, no rational human being can say that's a person. How could anybody look at an undifferentiated clump of cells with early development and say, that's the same as you and me? So we have to come to the conclusion then that it's possible to be a human life and to not be a person. And to them, that is so obvious. Now it's obvious to them because they want to do something to that human life, because that's the only reason that we make that distinction at all, because there are things that we want to do to that human life that we can't do to persons. And so we're going to say there is such a thing as a human being and then there is such a thing as a person. All human beings are not persons. So here's the trick. How do we decide what that means to be a person? Because it is a wild claim. It is a, to me, it is a wild claim. To have someone stand in front of me and I have a conversation with them and I say, you know, they tell me, look, you're, uh, they think that because their first point, your, your position is crazy, Jay. Your position is crazy because you expect me to accept the idea that this clump of cells has the same value that you and I have and that they have the same rights that you and I have. And they get to all these different confusions about it. We'll still say, oh, we're going to give them a social security card or we're going to let them, which is nonsense, right? 
I have no problem with graduated governmental rights. I have no problem with you not being able to drink until you're a certain age, drive till you're a certain age, own a gun until a certain age. All of these things I get, and I understand why we have not be able to rent a car till you're a certain age. So if we're going to say, there's no reason to say that we ought to give them social security numbers the second they come into existence. I'm fine with waiting till they're born, just like I'm fine on waiting till you're 18 to be able to vote, 16 to be able to drive, 21 to be able to drink, although I feel differently about that one probably. But um, I mean, you know, there, there's things that I'm okay with the concept of graduation to certain rights based on your maturing in society. But that's not the kind of rights we're talking about here. We're just talking about the basic right to exist and to not be destroyed. So when you say they're, Jay, they're obviously different. You're crazy if you don't see the differences. Well, I'm not as crazy as you think I am, but I understand why you think I'm crazy. But I do think that their human life, their whole and distinct human life from the moment they come into existence and they have the same basic rights and respect, and we have the same basic duty and responsibilities we have to any other human being, not the least of which is just to not kill them. That's all I'm asking us to do. Refrain from destroying human life unless it's absolutely necessary. That's the request that I'm making. Not to treat them like a toddler when they're a fetus, not to treat a fetus or not to treat them like a 10 year old when they're an embryo, because I know that embryos are not 10 year olds, but I know that a human embryo and a human 10 year old are the same thing at different stages of development. And so when I say, they say, Jay, you're crazy because you think they're all the same and they're obviously different. And so from that, they extract this idea that they are persons, we are persons, you and I are persons, and they are not persons. They are merely human. Hence the name of our organization. Merely Human Ministries. Merely humans have the same rights that all human beings should have. So, here's the problem. When you flip it around and you say, okay, what you're saying is, is that every human being comes into existence lives their life and then dies. And during that, they are two radically different things. And sometimes they're both of those things at the same time. They are a biological animal, a human, and they are a person, this magical rights-bearing entity to which I owe duty and responsibility. I have accountability for the ways that I treat them and they are to be recognized under the law. So we have a continuum of human life and you're saying we can draw lines in there and say, there are some people in human life that matter and some don't. And those people that matter, we confer upon them the title of person and those humans that don't matter, they're merely human. What makes that difference? So we're going to talk today a little bit about Mary Ann Warren's requirements for personhood. Mary Ann Warren, a philosopher, a pro-choice philosopher, gave us her five requirements for personhood. Persons have consciousness of objects and events, external and or internal to themselves, in particular, the capacity to feel pain. That's one. We have consciousness of objects and events, external and or internal to ourselves, in particular, our capacity to feel pain. We can feel pain and we're aware that we're feeling pain. Number two. Persons can reason. They have the developed capacity to solve new and relatively complex problems 
All right. Persons three, persons have self-motivated activity, activity which is relatively independent of either genetic or direct external control. I can decide what I want to do next. Four, persons possess the capacity to communicate by whatever means messages of an indefinite variety of types that is not just with indefinite number of possible contents, but an indefinitely on indefinitely many topics. So I can communicate with people through multiple different means. Persons have the pre five persons have the presence of self concepts and self awareness, either individual or racial or both. So Marianne Warren says you don't have to have all five of those, but if you have none of those, then you're not a person. Now that list is hard. <laughs> I mean, in the sense of it, it, if you, if you want to go through that list, you're going to find out that it does more than justify abortion. It justifies infanticide. It, it justifies killing the severely disabled. Uh, it, it justifies killing a lot of human beings. It, it takes a lot of people in the human family and scooches, just, just scooches them out of personhood. So yeah, you don't, you don't meet requirements, but even then some of them are just flat out arguable. And I want to talk about some of that. Persons have consciousness of objects and events, external and or internal to themselves, in particular, the capacity to feel pain. If there's anything that we are worse at is determining when somebody else can feel pain and what the level of pain they feel or experience is. And so it's, there was, there was years, years I've read in multiple different sources where, where we didn't believe that newborns felt pain. So when we did particular um, procedures, medical procedures on newborns, we did not give them anything to help with the pain. And then we found out later, as we advanced in our understanding of the nervous system of newborns, that not only do they actually experience pain, they appear to experience it more acutely than adults. Meaning whatever you do to them that would hurt me and you hurts them worse. And so essentially through the best advice of medical professionals over a long period of time, we were torturing newborns during medical procedures. Solid. Now I say this because we, when I say we don't understand how other people feel pain because pain is a first person experience. Uh, as a redhead, I have been given to understand through some of the research that I've read that I experience pain differently than a, than a brunette would uh, with somebody with a different uh, uh, melanin count in their skin, different color eyes, different color hair, all of that. They're going to experience pain a little differently than I'll experience it. That's why when you go to the doctor's office, they have that, that weird pain chart because it is so hard to understand the level of pain that you're feeling at any given moment. We have to have this weird series of smiley faces to frowny faces and say, can you, can you tell us which one of these frowny faces or smiley faces you are right now? Could you point to the one that best explains your pain level at the moment? And you know, if you point at the end there, it's just the worst level of pain, like that really sad, angry, upset looking smiley face. That's to indicate that this is the worst ever. I think Brian Regan has a great routine where he talks about uh, when he was going through some level of pain and him, when they asked him what level of pain he was, he said an eight, he said largely because he heard that if you break your femur, that's the worst pain that you can go under. And so he didn't want to insult the people that broke their femurs by saying he was a 10, even though he felt like he probably was maxed out on pain. Um, I can tell you, I have had several different things in my life that were incredibly painful. Uh, and I remember my wife will tell you the first time I had a kidney stone, 
when I didn't know what was going on and I was trying to figure out what was happening, I told her, I don't know what's happening to me. I feel like I've maxed out on the level of pain that I can endure right now. That's what I told her. So if, if anyone can tell me that it wasn't going to get worse than what I'm going through right now, I think I can ride this out until whatever's happening to me is over. But if it gets even a fraction worse than what I'm enduring right now, then I need help. And so I, I realized at that moment as I was dealing with all this pain that I had reached my maximum ability to deal with pain without answers. If I could have answers, I could deal with the pain more. But if the pain went like one click farther than it was, I was going to need some medical professional to explain to me both what was wrong with me and how we were going to stop this from hurting. So pain is very subjective. It's very first person. And we are terrible about being able to determine when someone else is in pain and what's hurting them. So to plant the first requirement to be a person as that persons have consciousness of objects and events external and internal to them. So in particular, the capacity to feel pain is already problematic from the beginning because you're grounding this idea of recognizing the right of another being to exist and my ability to measure whether or not you're sensing and experiencing pain. And it's one of the worst things we do in the world. So already we're in trouble. Let's go to number two. Persons can reason. They have the developed capacity to solve new and relatively complex problems. Okay. You can't satisfy this for a very long time after you're born. This requirement automatically excludes, I think, I want to say, I can't remember if you've ever heard of the, like the dot test where they, the mirror test, what they do, they're trying to determine whether or not you're aware of yourself. And this goes to presence of self-concept number five to self-concept, self-awareness, individual, racial, or both. Let's get jumping to five too. And we're talking about two and five kind of at the same time. Um, just, but I wanted to talk about the mirror test for a second. They put children in front of a mirror and they put a dot in the middle of the forehead. And then they're trying to determine whether or not you can look into a mirror and, and recognize what you're looking at is you, which gives some indication that we have crossed over into a place of self-concept and self-awareness. That I realize I am a thing, and when I'm looking at myself in the mirror, I see that's me. So they put this dot on the forehead, and they put kids in front of the mirror. And the kids look at themselves in the mirror. And for a long time, I want to say up to like 18 months and somewhere in that, I mean, it's a long time after they're born, 10 to 18 months or something like that, they look in the mirror and they just do nothing. And then all of a sudden, one day, they cross a threshold and you put them in front of the mirror and they look at themselves in the mirror and they do, they, they, they do this, they rub their forehead. Because they look in the mirror and they say, hey, that's me. And I got something on my forehead. And they start trying to rub it off to figure out what it is. So what they're, the reasoning behind the mirror test is that prior to them recognizing that that dot is on their head and trying to rub it off, then when they look in the mirror, they're not seeing themselves because they're not aware they are a thing in that sense. They don't have that level of self-awareness that the second they get that, they look in the mirror, they see the dot in their head, and they try to rub it off. And the problem is this developed capacity to even understand what you are. And then going back to two, the ability to reason 
to, 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 to reason and develop a solve new and relatively complex problems, man, I know adults that cannot solve relatively complex problems. I watch them all the time struggling with technology around me. I don't know how to make this work. I don't know how this, I don't know what to do. If you give, there are some of you put technology in front of them and like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to make it work. Like this is, this thing was designed to be user-friendly. It is essentially idiot proof. It was built by people who know that the people using it don't have the slightest idea how it works. And so they've made it as easy as possible for you to navigate its operating system. And still you hold it and start banging it against the table because you don't know what to do with it. The solving complex problems, are you kidding me? So even two and five, these are things that don't come to way, way later in development. So we just put all sorts of young life at, at, at risk to be destroyed. Persons have, number three, persons have self-motivated activity, activity which is relatively independent or either genetic or direct or external control. And I know people who deny this exists at all. Perfectly rational, reasonable adults who don't believe in this idea of self-motivated, uh, independent decision-making at all. We have no self-motivated activity. They think we are... Uh, deterministic by our very nature, that everything that's happening to us is just atoms colliding with these atoms and and I'm not making decisions. There's only illusion of myself and the only illusion of my mind. And that that what's actually happening is that there's a physical event that causes a physical side effect and a physical a cause and effect. Physical cause, physical effect. Physical cause, physical effect. Uh, and they they call this event, event, event causation, right? It's just a series of events happening. They just keep happening and keep happening. And as a result of physical things happening, atoms collide with atoms and something else happens. And I'm never motivating any activity in any real sense. So there's a whole worldview that denies this exists at all. For, for it to be the measurement of you being a person so that we can destroy you if you lack it is absurd. It's, 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 it's obviously difficult. And the, but the problem is it comes much earlier. I think I would argue that it comes much earlier, earlier than this she thinks it does. Self-motivated activity seems to me to be pretty basic. And, 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 by, and what I mean by that is we have evidence. First of all, we have evidence of the interaction. Christopher Kayser talks about this in chapter three of his uh, third edition of the Ethics of Abortion. He talks about the idea that um, there's evidence of twins interacting and triplets or anybody that shares a sack acting particularly twins, they're acting in a self-motivated activity, which is independent of the genetics. They're just deciding to do things. They, they enjoy relating with their twin. So they'll reach out and touch each other and, and not in a reflexive way. It's not like something happens like, Hey, and grab a hold of them. But it seems to be a pattern that they enjoy the company of their twin. And they do things to demonstrate that to each other inside the mother. Now, I got anecdotal evidence of this. My wife will tell you that the, our first two kids were two entirely different kids. She said that if she got into a position that bothered Peyton, Peyton would bang on side, inside of her for a second to express his displeasure with where she was sitting, and then he would stop. Uh, and she said MJ was different. MJ would hit until she moved. She got into a situation that she didn't like, and MJ hit and hit and hit and hit and hit and hit and hit. And hit and just kept hitting until my wife moved. So there, there you have uh, self-motivated activity. And I would tell you, by the way, that those two, that description of them is consistent to today when they're 20 years old and 18 years old. That those, those two personality hold, that holds to the way they are as human beings. Now they're more mature. Another thing, responding uh, self-motivated activity, 
Peyton, I could press on parts of my wife's stomach when she was pregnant and he would press back and I could move around. And if I pressed different parts, he would press against the different parts. He would find where I was pressing and he would push back without his feet or his hands. It's a little weird because you could actually see his hand go and push back out and he would move his feet and he would move around, but he was responding to things that we were doing. He wasn't, it wasn't, you know, there's no indication it was reflexive, right? It was a game that he would play and he would push it. And they also respond to different things. This also forms to four, right? Persons possess the capacity to communicate by whatever means. Messages of an indefinite variety of types. Well, I, we could argue that this type of uh, active by unborn and my wife was indicative of communication. Mary Jackson was trying to tell her, I'm sick of where you're sitting. It's, it's, it's squishing me weird right now. Move. And that's a basic rudimentary form of communication. So in, in the ones that it's not possible for the unborn to meet, it's also not possible for the newborns to meet. And, and, and the meeting those criteria come very late. And the others where she's assuming that the unborn don't meet them, we seem to have evidence that they may in fact do. And now it becomes a, a line of definition of how do we define the criteria that she's giving? Because what does she mean by communicate? Does my son hitting my wife or my daughter hitting my wife until she moves count as communication? Um, there's evidence I've seen of people saying they respond to light and that you can move light around and they'll respond to that light movement. They clearly know their mother's voices differently than the other voices. There's a relationship that they have to music. I know people that said they play certain music and their unborn kid would go nuts. And it was very specific for this one. It was very drum based, percussion based music. They went nuts when you played that percussion. So, so it's not clear. It's either not clear that the unborn don't meet this criteria or they're not capable of meeting that criteria. So by definition, you were just giving them requirements they can never meet. On any case, it's not, it's not clear that these are successful delineations between the human family so that I'm free to kill somebody else. They're, some of them are they're too arbitrarily chosen. I mean, who gave Mary Ann Warren the ability to be able to define what it means to be a person such that if I destroy you and you're not a person, I've done nothing wrong? Who authorized her to divide the human family in that way. And who gave her the wisdom to come up with the correct criteria when the, every single thing on that list has problems. Every single item on the list that we just gave has problems. She's not the only one. I just, I just wanted to use her because I think she's got the best attempt at giving us criteria to follow that says that we should be able to kill non-personal human life. We have no duty or obligation to it. By the way, even though it is impossible for a newborn to meet this criteria, Marianne Warren does not believe infanticide should be morally okay. Now, Michael Tooley does, Peter Singer does, Marianne Warren does not. Her defense of why, though, Christopher Kayser, again, going back to chapter three of the ethics of abortion, he points out that her defense of why we shouldn't be able to kill newborns, why infanticide is wrong, doesn't match up with her defense of why newborns, or why unborn, the unborn should be killed, or we should be free to kill them. So the same criteria can be judged on each one of them. And it's very ad hoc the way she tries to get out of it. At the end of the day, she's just deeply uncomfortable with the idea of infanticide. Good for her, by the way. Good for being un uncomfortable with the idea of infanticide so that even when your own arguments seem to be leading us all to the idea that infanticide should be okay, at least you say, I like my arguments all the way up to the point that they say we should be able to kill newborns, but then I don't like them. So we're going to find some other criteria to come in that says that we shouldn't be able to kill newborns. Uh, good for you, right? Uh, I mean, you're still sensitive on that issue, 
and you're not like a Tulier singer who have gone the other way and saying, yeah, I agree. The, the end result of my saying rational capacities or where we should ground the value of human beings means that newborns have no value, less value than certain fish out there. And so we should be able to do with them, do with them whatever we wish. So that's a problem that I think that we give too much when people um, argue and we try to meet them on those terms, I think that we should first point out, you try to make it sound like I'm crazy for thinking that very early human life ought to be given basic dignity and respect and minimally we shouldn't kill them. As if I don't understand that an embryo and an infant are two different things. I understand that they're two different distinct development stages of human life. I really do. I'm not confused about what fetuses can do and what they can't do. I'm not confused about what an embryo can or can't do. All I'm saying is that they're not required to do anything for you to be forced to refrain from killing them. That seems pretty basic to me. And when you say, no, 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 we can kill them because there's such a thing as persons and humans. To me, you're the one that's made this extraordinary leap this born out of your desire to do ill to another human life and that you have no reason for being able to give me that I should believe that you're right. Other than this list of criteria that were provided here that they can't possibly meet or they can, and you just won't define it in such a way that they do meet that criteria. By the way, like I said, I, we can make a case that they meet some of those. And if they meet some of those by Marianne Warren's definition, then they are persons. And then she'd go back and say, well, certainly an embryo can't meet those. She's right. I mean, th th that would be absolutely correct, right? I mean, early embryo cannot meet the requirements that we've been laid out for being a person. I just don't believe they have any responsibility or duty to do that. And, and that gets into a, a whole different thing. Because by the time we're destroying life to the practice of abortion, they're not early embryos. They're not an undifferentiated mass. Uh, that, that goes into research. That goes into other areas where we can get early life and use it as a resource. That has nothing to do with abortion. We're not performing abortions that early. The, we could get sidetracked into a discussion of oral contraceptives or things like that, uh, but that that's a different discussion for a different day. For the most part, when you're talking about the act of abortion as it's practiced by most people, the thing that is being destroyed is not an undifferentiated cell, uh, a clump of cells. It has already started to develop human-looking characteristics. But why do they look human? Because they are human. Because even when they're embryo and they don't have those human characteristics, they're coming. They're on their way. So the idea that we should be able to interrupt their lifespan or interrupt their life uh, because we have found them inconvenient and we were able to define them out of meaningful existence, to me, is weird. I understand that to them, the idea that I think you owe an embryo or a zygote the basic respect to refrain from killing it is weird to them because they don't look at it and say that can't possibly be human in the same way that you and I are. They say, well, it doesn't have the same capacities that we have, but it will. You know when it will? When it matures a little bit. Do you know why it won't mature? Because we kill it. That doesn't seem fair. Uh, it is a human. It is going to go through the human developmental process. 
And for me to accept the argument that I should be free to kill it because you have declared it a non-personal human life, uh, that that is an extraordinary step that has to be reviewed. They don't get to just say, well, they're not persons. They're obviously not persons. They're clearly not persons. And we all know persons have rights. Sure. But when I say persons have rights, I mean humans have rights. That's what I mean. And when you say persons have rights, and that's what I think, by the way, is the best and most inclusive and ultimately most protective of all human beings in society way to understand what the Constitution is saying when it's talking about persons and rights. That we should expand. That we're always at our best when we're expanding our neighborhood, when we talk about love our neighbor. We're always at our best when we're expanding all men created equal to a larger class of peoples. When the more inclusive we are, the better the world is going to be. And the more we're going to be forced to find creative solutions to the problems that we face, the more that we allow ourselves the luxury of defining other human beings out of meaningful existence, saying they're non-personal, they're not one of us, the more we put all sorts of people at risk, not just the unborn life that we want to destroy, but the severely disabled, the elderly, newborns, um, that may be injured unexpectedly or, or may show signs of a genetic disorder that we didn't catch early on. If we want a society that's inclusive and accepting, then we have to have a broad view of what it means to be a human being. Once we give ourselves the ability to say there's such a thing as a non-personal human and I'm allowed to destroy that thing, then we just open up a whole world of bad that we're going to have to sort through. So that that's what I wanted to talk about today. I, I think that that's an extraordinary claim, but I wanted to give Marianne Warren's requirements for personhoods a, a, a moment to talk about it because she did her best to give us a working definition of what it means to be person, a person that's more comprehensive than just hanging on one single thing. And what she has done is give us a list that, I think Christopher Kayser and others would say, have said, philosopher Christopher Kayser and others have said, put our, our humanity, our full humanity, our personhood at risk of being episodic during, the, during our life. Our dignity, our humanity, our personhood is something we either have or we don't. But when we tie it to things that we have in grades and things that come and go at different levels during the course of our life, we put ourselves in a very strange situation to decide who we owe obligations and duties to and who we don't and when we're valuable and when we're not. So on and short, Marion Warren's requirements were persons are conscious ability, the, the particularly the ability to feel pain. Uh, persons can reason they have the developed capacity to solve new and relatively complex problems. Persons have self-motivated activity, activity, which is relatively independent of either genetic or direct external control. Persons possess the capacity to communicate by whatever means or messages of an indefinite variety of types, persons have presence of self-concept, self-awareness. That's what you have to have, some of that, to be a person. And I just reject the idea that we can divide human beings up cleanly from persons and non-persons. I reject the idea that we have the authority to do that, especially when the end of that authority that we seek is the, the ability to destroy other human beings without apology and without reason as a resource or as an inconvenience. 
I reject the idea that anyone could ever come up with a list because as just a cursory look at that list, we saw that there are problems with it. That either it either gives it either defines too many people out of meaningful existence or it doesn't or it, it's it's not uh, defining the the group that it thinks it is defining out of existence. But either way, it's just a list that's not clean. It's not clean enough to be able to divide the human family up and say, okay, I get it now. I get it. Okay, so yes, yes, we can kill them. I get it. I get it. It's clear, crystal clear, we can kill them. Uh, so on the next one, before we talk to Tina Whittington, we're going to talk about birth as a bright line of an indicator. Uh, so we're going to continue the conversation a little bit about personal. We're going to get into a very particular, as opposed to the list of things that Marianne Warren gave us, we're going to address the people who say, Okay, birth is a clear line. It's a clear moment where we can say, from this point on, it is a person because it was born. And they have reasons for believing that. So we're going to look at those reasons on the next episode before we have Tina Whittington on. Uh, but that brings us to the conclusion of today. And as always, I thank everybody that's listening. If you're enjoying the content, please visit us at merelyhumanministries.org and you can donate to our effort there. If you are, um, and people have, and people are doing it, and we're grateful for it. I think everybody that's in, a part of this, uh, particularly the the excitement over, I have had people contact me and tell me the excitement over the interviews, some of the people that are agreeing to interview. That has been the exciting thing for me, is how many people that I really want to talk to about the work they're producing have been so gracious and generous with their time. And so I've I'm looking forward to the interviews we have coming up and even more people who are trying to book right now who, who we're arguing over days. I won't announce them until we have them booked. But this has been a, a fun project for everybody working on it. And we hope that you continue to tune in. hope that you share it with friends so they have the opportunity to hear, share it with others so that they can hear what we're doing. Look to the website, beerlyhumanministries.org. We are breaking out the interviews from season one and we're putting them there as a standalone. So if you want to go back and listen to the interview, but not the whole podcast, you have the freedom to do that. We're going to start putting other shorter snippets from the interviews up as well. Uh, so this is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. This has been the Human Things Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.